The Lever. Subscriber-supported journalism that holds power accountable. As a Lever Premium subscriber, you'll get to hear exclusive bonus content from this episode and others in your feed. To become a subscriber, go to levernews.com. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Lever Time, the flagship podcast from The Lever, an independent investigative news outlet. I'm your host, David Sirota. On today's show, we're going to be talking about some of the most important yet least talked about elections coming up in next week's midterms, the races for secretary of state. You may not know what that is. I'll give you a summary. It's the elected office that oversees elections in each state and has the power to potentially overturn election results. If one of those people happened to be a pro-Donald Trump election denier, for that conversation, I'm going to be speaking with the chair of the Democratic Secretaries of State Association to help break it all down. Then, for our big interview, I'll be speaking with Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island about his new must-read book called The Scheme how the right wing used dark money to capture the Supreme Court. We here at The Lever have been reporting on dark money in politics for years, and Senator Whitehouse is one of the few people in Congress who takes the issue as seriously as we do. We had a great conversation about what comes next in the fight against dark money. This week, our paid subscribers will also get a bonus segment, another installment of Pod Is Not Saving America. This past week, producer Frank subjected himself to the Pod Bros' recent interview with former President Barack Obama about his advice for Democrats. Let's just say it wasn't the most helpful advice. If you want access to Lever Time Premium, you can head over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber, giving you access to all of our premium content, and you'll be directly supporting the investigative journalism that we do here at The Lever. Speaking of which, if you're looking for other ways to support our work, share our reporting with your friends and family. Leave this podcast a rating and a review on your podcast player. The only way that independent media grows is by word of mouth, and we need all the help we can get to combat the inane bullshit shit that is corporate media. A quick housekeeping note. Because of next week's midterm elections, Lever Time will be released on Thursday instead of Wednesday. And that will be our election results coverage with the Lever's reporters and a special guest. As always, I'm joined by producer Frank. What's up, Frank? Not much, David. Um, I'm feeling tingly today. Uh, Last night, I saw the movie The Triangle of Sadness. Have you heard of this at all? I I have not. It sounds pretty sad it's actually it's not very sad it's like a very dark very hilarious in your face satire of classism set on a luxury yacht in like the south pacific oh my god that sounds amazing i last night watched the first episode of the of the new season of white lotus which is also about kind of class in in America and um, kind of making fun of it. And it's not exactly satirical. It's kind of just biting. Yes. Uh, I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, this I I highly, highly recommend Triangle of Sadness to anybody. Like my partner and I saw it. We were like blown away by like just how how it's just like completely absurd but like the messaging and the themes were so cutting it was like it was a like honestly a brilliant film. I'm marking it down on my list. Uh, I'm feeling this week I'm feeling 
okay. We're one to one as we record this. We're Phillies one, uh, Astros <laughs> one. Uh, so I'm 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 very nervous about what's going to happen in the World Series. Um, uh, hopefully, by the time this podcast comes out, uh, it will be Phillies uh, up a game or two. Uh, but I'm I've been my son and I have been enjoying it. It's been a really great bonding experience. I'm also actually feeling pretty good. Uh, about some other election results in the world. I know everyone's anxious about uh, the midterms coming up here in the United States, but arguably the most important election in the entire world took place uh, over the last uh, day or two here, depending on when you're listening to this. It was the election in Brazil this past Sunday. Brazil's former president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, better known as Lula, won that country's presidential election, defeating the far-right incumbent Jair Bolsonaro. With 100% of the vote counted, Lula won 50.9% of the electorate to Bolsonaro's 49.1% of the electorate. Still still a pretty close race. Yeah, I've worked on campaigns, man. That That is a really, really close election. But the reason I say it is such an important election Uh, For those who are living under a rock or living in a cave, um, the Earth's life support system, the climate, the ecological life support system, is much of it is in Brazil, in the Amazon. So who wins and who doesn't win in a race like that is basically it's a race for, for who gets to govern the life support system that we are all relying on. Uh, if you, I'm assuming you are a person who breathes air, uh, who needs a livable climate. Lula, a former factory worker who had become Brazil's first working class president, uh, originally elected 20 years ago, uh, as of the time of this recording on Monday, uh, October 31st, Bolsonaro has yet to concede, and he has previously suggested he might not accept defeat. But again, the implications for the future of Brazil in this election are massive. Uh, most importantly, again, uh, when it comes to climate policy, and again, that that has implications for us all, everybody living on earth. During Lula's first term in office from 2003 to 2006, Amazon deforestation decreased by more than 43%. During his second term, it dropped by about 52.3%. That's according to data from Map Biomass. Under Bolsonaro, who pushed Amazon development as one of his key policies, deforestation rose by 72%. Now, producer Frank, I think a lot of people think deforestation, they think it's some sort of faraway thing. I always think about it as, again, we're all on a spaceship uh, hurtling through the dark vast vacuum of space. uh, And Brazil controls a big portion of the room on the spaceship, which houses the life support system. So I I really can't stress enough how important an election like this is. Do you think people, rank and file people in the United States, rank and file people around the world, people who kind of don't really pay that much attention, do you think lots of people know how important a race, uh, an election like that was? Oh, no, no, absolutely not. Was this a trick question or this was or like a rhetorical question? <laughs> no, I, th- <laughs> I think most people in the U.S. don't care about U.S. elections. So like, I, right. I mean, right. that's a little bit cynical, but am I, I overstating I think- the case that it's 
like the most important election on the planet? No, you're not overstating it. But the, your question was specifically like, do you think regular rank and file people care about this? No, probably not. But I agree right. with you that the the actual implications of this are huge and we should totally be celebrating this. That's a good segue when we're talking about elections that maybe people don't appreciate the importance of. That's a good segue to our first discussion, our first interview here. We're going to be talking again about the midterm elections here specifically the statewide races for secretary of state. That's another example of a set of elections that are hugely important, but that I think a lot of people don't really know much about or really pay much attention to. Historically, the secretary of state offices across the country, we're not talking about U.S. secretary of state, we're talking about secretary of state of individual states. These are elections that don't get a lot of national attention because the typical responsibilities of a secretary of state is like a lot of paperwork. You're managing the state's business services, licensing, archives, registries. It's like all the paperwork bullshit I hate doing at the lever that I do too much of at the lever to uh, on the sort of back end of our operation. Yeah, please no one ever nominate David to become a secretary of state. Please, <laughs> for the love of God. But I'm good at the, I am good at the paperwork. I mean, I am good at it, although it drives it's me crazy. It's not a question of being good at it. It's a question of san- sanity. Exactly. <laughs> True. That's fair. But But here's the thing. Most importantly... Secretaries of state oversee states' elections, sometimes including the certification of election results. Now, I can hear listeners putting together why this becomes important. Now that we live in the age of the Republican Party's full-blown election denialism, the races for secretary of state have become infinitely more important. In 2020, we saw the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, catapulted to national notoriety when he decided to not overturn Georgia's election results when he was being pressured by Donald Trump. Now it's 2022, and there are several Republican election deniers running for Secretary of State in swing states across the country, a trend that does not bode well for the future of American democracy. To help explain the ins and outs of these races, why they're so important, I'm now going to be joined by Jenna Griswold. Jenna Griswold is the Secretary of State of Colorado. She was elected statewide here in Colorado. She is also the chair of the Democratic Secretaries of State Association, which is the organization dedicated to getting Democrats elected in those offices and to defeat Republican election deniers. Hey, Jenna, how you doing? Great. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so you're the Secretary of State for Colorado. Before we get into uh, why Colorado's election system is kind of important in the nation uh, and why your race, you're running for re-election now, is, is so important because of that, let's just start out with, for those listeners who don't exactly know what a Secretary of State does, let's start there. What is a Secretary of State What is the job? Why should people care about Secretary of State races when they go to vote this year? Uh, That's a great place to start. So Secretary of State in Colorado is one of the four statewide constitutional office holders uh, of executive office. Uh, And the Secretary of State oversees a couple of different things money in politics, uh, making sure that lobbyists are disclosing uh, the business registry, raffle and bingo, charities. I oversee the state seal. I always used to joke my first campaign that I was going to bring together a seal team 
but no one thought that joke was funny, so I had to stop. Um, but the most <laughs> important clap. thing. Slow clap for the joke. <laughs> it was a slow eye roll clap. Um, I, I stand by my SEAL team idea. Uh, but most importantly is uh, I'm the chief election officer for the state of Colorado. So I oversee the elections. When some people hear that, uh, certainly some people on the right, and we'll get into that, they get you know freaked out. What does it mean oversee the election? Like you can yeah. like change the election, you can meddle with the election, right? Like what does oversee the election mean? Yeah, none, none of the things that you just said. Uh, <laughs> it, it means making sure um, that Coloradans can cast a ballot in compliance with state and federal rule uh, uh, and law. Uh, so it's oversight of the county clerks supporting them um, and, and taking action when necessary. I also see my job as, as being proactive. So when we see emerging threats or risks to our election infrastructure or voters, making sure that we have a proactive response. And, and that's what I've largely done as secretary of state. So you are also chair of the Democratic Association of Secretaries of State. Um, this year, there has been a lot more interest in Secretary of State races all across the country. Uh, and I guess for those who are living in a cave or living under a rock and don't, don't know why, it's because the Republican Party has been, uh, uh, not just trying to win elections, but trying to uh, not allow others to win elections, even if they actually win. Uh, and by that, I mean, they're trying to, I think, kind of explicitly say that they will not accept election results that they don't want. That's a we've gotten into an era in which running hard at your opponent to try to win an election used to be the tactics, uh, the sort of hardcore taxes of the of the 90s, 2000s, you know, harsher campaigns. Now it seems like the Republicans have turned uh, turned from I'm just going to try to defeat my opponent into I'm I'm going to try to potentially defeat the election system. Uh, do you think that's a fair analysis that that the, the challenging of election results or the accepting of the election results has now become a terrain uh, that that has become part of the political battle. And is that a change from what had been the case, you know, five, 10, 15 years ago? So I, I partially agree with you and, and partially disagree. Um, and, and the part where I disagree is I, I don't think uh, it's a mainstream re Republican thought. I, I do think that there's a, a group of extremists who are running as Republicans trying to destabilize American elections. Uh, so election deniers are, are running for secretary of state in Nevada, Arizona, Michigan, Minnesota, New Mexico. Uh, these are folks who do not believe in free and fair elections. Um, and uh, they, they should not be the people overseeing the nation's free and fair elections. And I'll tell you one of the things that really gives me hope that I, I uh, hope, hope we can get into um, is just seeing in, in Colorado Republicans stand up for our election system. Um, but with that said, we are seeing it as part of uh, the, the coordinated attack on democracy, the refusal to accept election results un unless uh, the candidates uh, win. We saw that in Colorado. Uh, we went into the first statewide recount in actually 20 years when Rogue County Clerk Tina Peters, who faces various counts of indictment for compromising her own voting equipment, uh, she was in the Republican primary for Secretary of State and refused to accept the election results. So we went into a recount. It proved again the election results were accurate. And then we defended and defeated six lawsuits and appeals based on conspiracies. Uh, so yes, that's an emerging trend. And it's uh, actually very dangerous, I, I think, to the nation. And I wonder... 
if you agree with this, just taking the long view here. It's my belief, and you can tell me if you disagree, it's my belief that this, uh, this trend started in the 2000 election, when it seemed that who wins or who loses elections and uh, the Supreme Court intervenes to stop the counting of votes started the process of normalizing the idea, not not that you only fight to win an election, but that now it is a, 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 a seemingly more normalized thing for, and I would say it's Republicans, for Republicans to fight to prevent the election infrastructure from operating accurately uh, and fairly. I trace it back to 2000. Where do you trace this trend back to? Uh, where were the turning points? And I guess then the other question is, is like, what can turn it back? Is the, is the, is the so-called uh, train uh, running off the tracks and there's no way to put it back on the tracks? Oh, well, we need to get a historian onto this podcast with <laughs> us. Um, but what, what I would say is a very important inflection point, uh, of course, is the first campaign of, of Donald Trump, his subsequent, subsequent win. Um, and that the fact that he tried to steal the American presidency in 2020. Uh, and we can go into specifics, but ultimately, uh, the failed stealing of the American presidency has not stopped. Uh, it has continued into 2021. It has continued into 2022. Uh, and in terms of is, is the train already barreling down, uh, the line too right, fast how do you stop to stop? It? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think it is. I, I do think that, uh, these midterm elections are, are a potential turning point for the country. Over 60% of American voters will have an election denier on their ballot. Uh, these are folks who are looking to uh, destabilize American elections with the intent of destabilizing the nation. Uh, but we have the ability to reject this extremism at the ballot box on November 8th. Uh, and that's why I go back to your other um, point, like who, who is behind all, all mm -hmm. of uh, this uh, attempts to destabilize and, and again, I, I think uh, this country has this great opportunity on November 8th to come together uh, across political party, uh, Republicans, Democrats and unaffiliated to uh, reject extremism. So I don't see what's happening uh, across the nation as Republicans versus Democrats. Uh, I see it as extremists versus the American people. And the American people have this great opportunity to reaffirm ourselves to our, our fundamental values and fundamental freedoms on November 8th. Everything you just said, I think, is true. This is empirical data about election deniers uh, who are on the ballot. And yet, according to the recent New York Times uh, poll, only 7% of all registered voters see the threat to democracy as the most important issue during this year's election. Uh, relatedly, Democrats are outspending Republicans 57 to 1 by one count on TV ads for their Secretary of State candidates. Are you troubled at all? Uh, or, or what is the explanation for the fact that, yes, I think it's very clear that basic democracy is facing a real threat. And yet the empirical data that we're seeing, even amid ads spotlighting that threat, it doesn't 
necessarily seem, at least in polls, that the issue is as salient as it should be. I I do think democracy is a top issue on Americans' minds. And I'm not familiar with the exact poll you're you're talking about. Um, But a a recent uh, ABC, NBC poll uh, showed democracy was one of the top issues. So I do think Americans are very concerned, um, but people can have multiple concerns. You know, look, I I grew up in a cabin with an outhouse outside on food stamps. Uh, You you look at the the price of groceries right now. um, You look at the cost of living. uh, Americans can have multiple concerns at once. Uh, You you can be concerned uh, about, uh, you know, just the the bottom line of paying rent and and buying groceries, while you can be concerned about the fact that extremists are are taking away uh, women's ability to decide when to have a family, who to have a family with, while you're concerned about democracy. So I I actually think you're seeing uh, the unprecedented support of uh, great nominees for Secretary of State, just because the the nation understands that, that we're in this really troubling times. Uh, and you see through grassroots support, uh, just a groundswell for nominees, uh, including here in the state of Colorado. We've had, uh, gosh, a ton of support, a ton of grassroots support. But also more than that, David, you know, I, I travel the state on, on a continual basis. Um, and no matter where I'm at, whether it's uh, Montrose in the Western Slope, Pueblo, uh, Denver or Boulder, people are, are really showing up and, and you can see in their eyes that the concern for the future of the country. So, again, I, I think we are in troubled times. Uh, and we're not going to beat every single election denier running across the nation. That's very unlikely to happen. But I, I do think we're going to win enough races to, to reject the extremism, to disincentivize, at least among some, to use it as a political tool. Um, and, and we'll continue to be able to, conti- to, we'll be able to be in a point to continue to fight for democracy. But that means having a, a measure of success in, in, on November 8th. Let me ask you about your race, because it's a, it's a very interesting race in the sense that, that the Republican primary produced a so-called moderate, uh, which was kind of surprising. Uh, Colorado Republican primaries uh, in the past have, for a long time now, have been producing uh, very uh, not so-called moderate candidates. Um, the opponent is a woman named Pam Anderson. And, and to be clear, it did not produce uh, more extremist candidates. My question yeah. is, is there's one argument that would say – um, the Republican Party, let's say, of Colorado producing a moderate candidate, um, a more moderate candidate, uh, is a good thing that we need, that it would be good to have a Republican non-election denier uh, as a an elected secretary of state. And I'm not asking you to argue against your own candidacy. But there's one argument that would say having a Republican secretary of state who's a non-election denier would be good because that would be a pushback inside the Republican Party. Or there's an argument that somebody presenting themselves as a moderate, a Republican, getting elected, that once they get to an office, they there will be a kind of – they will be sucked in by the uh, National Republican Party uh, and the incentive structure it has set up uh, for to to promote and embrace uh, election deniers and that that person would change from being a moderate. Where do you come down on that argument? First off, I think my record of being a champion for voting rights and increasing access for Colorado uh, and intervening in in counties led by Republican county clerks and Democratic county clerks um, is uh, a pretty good record to have. You know, in 2019, I, I led the largest democracy reform package in the nation. We've increased drop boxes by 65%, added more in-person voting, set up automatic voter registration, which has registered 350,000 Republican, Democrats, and unaffiliated voters. 
uh, and I've acted decisively to, to safeguard our elections. Um, but I, I do think there's some big differences between my opponent and me. But but to start with um, some uh, agreement, uh, she is not an election denier. I think that's good for the state. I think it's good for the nation. We should not have election deniers running to be chief election officers, period. Uh, it is not good. She's not an election denier. She believes Joe Biden was duly elected. She believes uh, our elections are safe and secure. We agree on that. But there are some pretty big differences. I'm the only candidate in this race who has overseen statewide elections, six at this point, several with uh, record-breaking turnout. Uh, also, my opponent, um, you know, says she does not support the big lie, uh, but campaigns with big lie candidates like Eric Adland running for Congress or Danny Moore. She has refused to say that she'll stop campaigning with them. At one point, she said she supported the entire ticket. Eric Adland was there. Uh, and to tell you, David, that that's troubling to me. Right. That speaks to the that speaks to the to the to the Republican Party gravitational pull uh, that even if you uh, are a, quote unquote, more moderate person, you're going to be in the orbit of election deniers. Right. Yes. Um, and I, I would say, you know, it's uh, I, the, the reason it is, uh, I, I think, so concerning is the, the big lie is why Tina Peters compromised her own voting equipment. It's why the Chafee County clerk works behind bulletproof glass. Uh, the big lie is why someone was just sentenced to 18 months in prison for threatening my life. Uh, it is having real effects on election workers, our election infrastructure, uh, and on voters. Uh, so to be a candidate for Secretary of State, I, I think it's inappropriate. Uh, she also, by the way, when I was running that big 2019 bill to increase access, um, Emily Sirota, by the way, was a huge champion uh, in supporting it and getting it through. Go, Emily. Uh, go, Emily. <laughs> my, my opponent um, did not support it. She actually testified uh, against that bill and tried to kill it. So it's just different visions for the state. Um, but, you know, ultimately, again, uh, I, I'm glad she's not a Jim Marchant. Uh, I'm glad she's not the Republican nominee uh, of Michigan who says yoga is satanic. Uh, I'm glad she's not the Republican nominee in Arizona who's a big line nominee. Um, so I think it's it's good for democracy in the nation uh, to have re Republican nominees for this office who are, are, are you know, uh, convinced that elections do work. In Colorado has been a leader in the vote by mail system. I mentioned and I pre previewed that at the, the top of this interview. Uh, Colorado has a well-functioning vote by mail system. Uh, some other states have have adopted similar systems, uh, but then seen Republicans try to repeal them. I mean, there's that incredible story where the Republicans actually passed vote by mail in Pennsylvania. Then uh, the Democrats won the state, and the Republicans tried to essentially limit or even uh, in some cases rescind parts of their vote by mail system because they didn't like the results. There's been a push by some Republican lawmakers here in Colorado to end our longstanding vote by mail system. Do you foresee ending vote by mail as the next voting rights battle on the national level from Republicans? That's a really good question. We, we have seen legislation, which our, our legislature and I have stopped uh, to roll back voting rights uh, and voting access in the state of Colorado. Uh, it is one of the, um, what, what do you call it? Not the proposals, but one of the, the policies, uh, the, the propositions of the Colorado Republican Party uh, to undo vote by mail as we know it in the state of Colorado. Um, but with that said, I, I'm very confident we're going to stop any scaling back of, of vote by mail here. Um, but it has been a subject of, of some of the voter suppression laws passed across the nation. Uh, a 
across the nation, 34 uh, new laws to suppress the vote or subvert elections have been passed just last year. Over 500 have been introduced uh, in the recent years. Um, and I think it's uh, really important to talk about what's happening um, because ultimately you look at all the data, you look at the pre-2020 um, policymaking, Vote by mail doesn't help one party over the other. It just helps voters. Uh, it's one of the reasons that we had record turnout in 2020 in the midst of a, a global pandemic, not only among Democratic voters uh, across the nation, but also among Republicans. Uh, and all the data shows that it, it doesn't help one party over the other. And I wish we were in a place where... Um, Facts and, and policy uh, was was produced to actually help people based on reason, not conspiracies, uh, because a lot of the rollback we see is is a direct result of, of the big lie and disinformation about our nation's elections. One last question for you. This popped up the Republican State Leadership Committee, uh, which is the campaign arm of the Republican Party for state uh, secretary of state races. Yes. It's not been spending money uh, on uh, the election denying candidates as far as 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 I can tell. A committee spokesperson said, said, quote, we simply cannot match what Democrats are spending on these races and we need to prioritize protecting our incumbents. I'm wondering why you think that is. Is it really that they don't have the resources or is this the leadership of the Republican Party, if not having the slightest bit of ethical scruples, then being a little bit nervous about getting too close to uh, extremists? You know, David, I really can't say. Um, I, I don't know where they've been spending or what they've been spending on. I, I do know they have attack ads up in this, uh, the state of Colorado where they were un announced um, some money coming into the state of Colorado. Um, but I, I'm just honestly not sure. What, what I can say is that, um, gosh, the, this nation, uh, we, we need to come together and reject this extremism. And I think very luckily, uh, what I'm seeing on the campaign trail is support from Democrats, support from unaffiliated, and, and support from many Republicans uh, who just believe that Colorado voters and American voters should be able to choose their elected officials in safe and secure elections. That's why I'm running for re-election. Uh, because I, I think the foundations of this country, where everyday people choose elected officials who then go fight for them uh, and, it, you know, uh, uh, fight for the policies that we care about, uh, is, is something we should remain dedicated to. Jenna Griswold is the Democratic Secretary of State of Colorado. She's running for re-election right now. She is also the head uh, of the Democratic Association of Secretaries of State. Uh, you can find her website, Jenna for Colorado, uh, and you can find her uh, on Twitter. What's your Twitter account? Uh, Jenna Griswold. There nice and go. simple. Instagram too. And David, I've been <laughs> yes. teaching myself how to do Instagram reels and stories. So lots of new content. I, I got to try that. <laughs> I, I have not, I, I have not gotten into that, but you are, you're urging me to do that. I, I do think it. I will, I, I will, I will try that. Good luck to you on the campaign trail, Jenna. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with my interview with U.S. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse about dark money. Welcome back to Lever Time. For our big interview today, we're going to be sharing my conversation with U.S. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island. Of everyone in Congress, Senator Whitehouse is one of the few who has been steadily, consistently beating the drum about the flood of dark money that has subverted the American political system. It's a topic that we cover here week in, week out at The Lever. Senator Whitehouse is also one of the few elected Democrats who's been critical of the Democratic Party writ large and its decades-long inaction on the issue of dark money, 
which has allowed Republicans and right-wing business interests to chip away at America's campaign finance laws and to effectively legalize corruption. Now, Senator Whitehouse has a new book out. It's called The Scheme, How the Right Wing Used Dark Money to Capture the Supreme Court. The Levers Andrew Perez and I spoke with Senator Whitehouse about that new book. We also talked about the fate of the Disclose Act, which is the legislation that he's spearheading to expose dark money. And we talked about what comes next in the fight against all of this corruption. Senator Whitehouse, thanks for being here. Okay, tell us about the scheme. How did conservatives use dark money to capture the courts? And I should ask, how do you define the term dark money? So dark money is um, money that is spent for purposes of political influence, um, but spent anonymously so that citizens are denied the fundamental awareness of who it is that is trying to influence their democracy. Um, And the role of dark money in capturing the court was pretty uh, profound. Um, The vehicle that was used to select justices who would do the bidding of the big donors was the Federalist Society. And at the time that the Federalist Society was providing the venue for the big donors to do their judge picking, uh, it was also receiving enormous multi-million dollar anonymous contributions. Um, And if you walked out the front door of the Federalist Society and turned down the hallway in the same building on the same floor, you'd come to the Judicial Crisis Network, so-called, the fictitious name of another Leonard Leo organization. And they ran uh, huge dark money expenditures into TV campaigns, first against Garland and then for Gorsuch, for Kavanaugh and for Barrett, taking in checks as big as 15 17, 20 plus million dollars uh, while hiding the identities of the donors who were behind it all. Arguably, one person contributed as much as 70 million dollars to pick who would be on the Supreme Court. And we don't know who they are or what business they have before the court. Thank you, Senator. Um, okay, so let's I, I guess we should talk about um, Leonard Leo then. Um, and, you know, so we recently reported um, in, in collaboration with ProPublica on um, how Leo is the beneficiary of this new $1.6 billion donation from um, Barry Side, who, you know, effectively donated his surge protector company to uh, to Leo uh, and, and converted it into a political advocacy uh, slush fund of sorts. Um, you know, they basically there was there was um, 400 million in taxes that were effectively uh, avoided on the sale. There were no taxes on the sale that mm-hmm. became a public subsidy for Leo. So can we talk about this case? Like, is this going to be the new normal? Um, is anyone going to do anything about it? It's uh, hard to see what uh, anybody will do about it. The logical people to do something about it would be the Internal Revenue Service. Because. Um, the use of 501c3s and 501c4s is theoretically policed by the IRS under the oversight of the Treasury Department. In fact, they've stopped policing this because they were so terrorized back during the Obama administration when Republicans tried to impeach the IRS commissioner 
sent the junior IRS official who had been in charge of the 501c3s and 501c4s, sent a referral to the Department of Justice to prosecute her as a criminal and just turned right-wing media full on blast with all sorts of, you know, nonsense about who this was targeting, um, you know, the right wing and conservatives, which a later inspector general report completely debunked, but you know how later works in the press world, nobody noticed. And the original storyline, the fake narrative uh, has prevailed. So the IRS is in basically a fetal position on this and has uh, basically thrown in the towel on enforcing its own rules and laws, um, which is really regrettable. Um, But there's also a lot of blame in the Obama administration for not sticking up for their own commissioner. They actually bought into the right-wing narrative and threw the IRS under the bus rather than explaining what was going on here to the American public and making it a a teachable moment. And with that, 501c3, 501c4 uh, political influence exploded. Let's let's turn back to the the courts for a second, just generally, because I think the courts have gone – um, there's an understanding and then there's a kind of a lack of understanding. And I want to, I want to first talk about, uh, President Obama. He appointed 334 judges in eight years. Trump appoints 245 judges in just four years. Republicans flipped the Supreme Court, built their supermajority, uh, first by denying a vote on Garland. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg chooses not to retire under Obama and she passed away in September of 2020. There's been an asymmetry. I think, in how the parties have approached the courts. Would you say that's right? Do you think Absolutely. the Democratic Party could do anything differently? Absolutely. Well, looking back, particularly, there's a lot we could have done differently. First of all, the right wing has been angry about the court for a long time. Impeach Earl Warren mm-hmm. was a right wing John Bircher slogan, you know, 30, 40 years ago. So they've been excited about the court ever since Uh, Brown versus Board of Education, when there was supposed to be that huge, you know, popular opposition to it uh, across the South, Um, Roe versus Wade, Miranda versus Arizona. There are all sorts of cases that were turned into cultural touch points that annoyed the right wing. So they've been interested in judges for a long, long time, and we weren't. So there was asymmetry there. Uh, The second thing is that many, many years ago, um, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce commissioned a report to remedy the failing political force of the corporate sector. And one of the recommendations in that memo was that they needed to control the court because the court controls so much of uh, America's social and economic policy. So both at the sort of street and base level of people who are furious about having, you know, desegregation and so forth, and up in the corporate suites where they were afraid of what was going on in the 60s and the 70s, there was this convergence of interest in making sure that they had a court that would rule their way. And we slept through most of that for decades and um, have done a lousy job pretty much constantly. It's really only Dobbs um, that has seriously awakened people to what's going on. Citizens United had a pretty big effect, but but Dobbs has been the real wake up call for us. Forty years too late. Well, so so on that topic, you know, obviously this year Republicans um, kind of use the Supreme Court to realize their you know long term goal to overturn um, federal protections for abortion rights. On the other hand, and this is something you write about, we write about it a lot too. Um, the, the the Supreme Court is a corporate star chamber, right? 
Like it sides with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce 70% of the time now. So I guess, you know, what, what do you think people should um, should be thinking about this court or how they should be thinking about it? And, and do you think that people understand kind of the, how the court, um, you know, does so much work on business issues and, and sides with big business groups so often? I mean, we can get into how they side with big business um, further on in the conversation, if you like, because there are plenty of avenues through which they do the bidding of big corporate interests, particularly big regulated and polluting corporate interests to be specific. But the the method of uh, all of this has really been to select just justices who would do, you know, the corporate bidding. And um, it began way back with that memo. The court uh, had never really created a role for corporations in politics. Uh, the guy who wrote the memo became Justice Powell about four months later. Memo not disclosed to the Senate at the time, by the way. So he pushed his big role for corporations in, in politics. He opened up the doorway for corporations to participate directly in American elections. Um, and he did it over years. He did it first with the Massachusetts banking decision and then, you know, onward, um, through other cases. Um, and, the effect has been really quite profound. I think uh, the two concepts people need to bear in mind, one is regulatory capture or agency capture, which we think of as something that, you know, happened with crooked railroad commissions in the 19th century that were run by the railroad barons. That's what this court is. It's a captured entity, not a conservative one or any of that. Um, and you need to have that history of what is called regulatory capture or agency capture in mind in order to understand the behavior of this court. And the second thing you need to have in mind is um, covert operations. You know, intelligence services run pretty aggressive and pretty uh, comprehensive covert operations in other countries. And what the fossil fuel industry primarily did was they uh, ran a covert operation in clandestine fashion in and against our own country in order to make sure that they could control the court and have decisions go their way, that they could never get Congress to deliver for them ever, ever. Um, so those are the two things I think people need to bear in mind. Covert operations applied in country as opposed to overseas and by billionaires instead of by the government and capture uh, a controlled court that does more or less what it's told. So just to follow on to that on business issues, I want to ask kind of an overview question here, where you think the court is most uh, dangerous, most acutely changing uh, the law on business issues for people who don't know how business influences the court. Also, tell us a little bit about how that works, not just through the appointment of judges, but these things called amicus briefs, yeah. how the Republican attorneys general sets uh, comes with precedent setting cases. They kind of serve them up to the justice. Just talk about where people should be most concerned specifically on issues and how that influence works. It, the court is most dangerous in those areas where uh, business influence collides with democracy and uh, their efforts to disable basic tenets of democracy to advance business interests has been really profound. The most powerful is, you know, money is the mother's milk of politics. So letting unlimited business interest money flow was a very big deal. And also blinding citizens to who was spending the money 
um, and allowing those unlimited business interest funds to become unlimited anonymous business interest funds has been a complete upheaval in our politics. It's created things like super PACs that didn't even used to exist. The way we see our politics now, somebody who's come of age in the last decade would never recognize democracy as it was beforehand because it's been so corrupted by dark money. But then you can also throw in the attack on the Voting Rights Act, disabling its key provisions, the support for partisan gerrymandering, um, and the sneaky... Uh, creation of uh, so-called First Amendment rights for uh, corporate fictions um, so that they can push a new theory that dark money actually enjoys constitutional protection. So that turns democracy on its head. It's not we the people anymore. It's we who have the big bucks and we have the big we who have the big bucks and want to secretly spend Big bucks. And if you don't think that's a real problem, note that it has just been reported that in this election, for Republican senators alone, the dark money has hit $1 billion. You don't spend a billion dollars unless you expect a big payback. So you know who those Republican senators are going to be working for, never mind who voted for them. So your book includes a really, really, really remarkable footnote. And just as an aside, having written three books myself, I think you almost need to write a separate book about this and not have it just be a footnote. And I want everyone <laughs> to hear this because it, it, it is really fantastic to to hear this kind of of, of frankness. You write, quote, while the, while, the, <laughs> while the focus of this book is the Republican-backed dark money scheme that's captured the court, a moment of reflection and confession on our side is in order. On a great many occasions, Democrats at many levels failed to fight back or give public warning as the scheme progressed. It was worse than appeasement. It was acceptance. You note that Democrats walked away from the climate fight in the Obama years, as well as the fight during the Tea Party years over whether the IRS, as you said, should scrutinize political activity. You write... Quote, for years, we didn't force a vote on the Disclose Act. That's the legislation to force uh, disclosure of dark money. You say for years, we let the donor friendly five to four partisan Supreme Court decisions pile up. They'd grown to 73 by the time anyone blew the whistle. Individual bad decisions that we should have decried often went totally unremarked. In confirmation hearings, we concerned ourselves more with nominees stances on, quote, the issues than on the machinery that put them there. We were sleeping sentries. Talk about what. What in an alternate reality Democrats could have done differently and what you think the lessons from what you just talked about in that footnote, what they can do differently moving forward? Yeah, I think almost every American is pretty anxious about the state of our country right now, um, particularly the political state of our country right now. And I think a lot of the upheaval and upset that we're seeing um, comes from frustration that American democracy is not working for regular people the way it ought to. If you're poor, if you're rural, um, there are, you know, lots of reasons for you to look around and say, nobody's helping me. Nobody cares about what I have to say. And when you look at the academic studies, they confirm that, in fact, there's zero statistical correlation between what the public wants and what Congress does. There's strong statistical correlation between what Congress does and what the big money spenders want. And so you have this underlying anger and anxiety uh, that I think is largely driven by all of this dark 
money, not the dark money itself, but the influence that it creates, the ability to stop things that the public wants, the ability to control things from behind the scenes and be the, the secret string puller. And people may not know exactly how it's happening, but I think they've got a very deep sense that something has gone awry. And so um, I very strongly believe that getting rid of this dark money will turn a corner and help us bring the temperature down in our country and find common cause with uh, Republicans and Democrats across the aisle more easily because there isn't this third secret clandestine influence pulling everybody's strings on the Republican side. So uh, to me, that is why dark money matters, it, because it is corrosive to and corrupting of democracy. And weirdly enough, actually in the Citizens United decision by eight to one, all of the justice agreed dark money is corrupting. So, yeah, and we're seeing it in happening in real life. And we have not blown the whistle on that. That's where the Democrat failure has been. In fact, in the first year, I think it was the first year of the Biden administration, we checked the transcripts of for the president and for the vice president to see how often they talked about dark money. Each of them used the phrase just once. And it was buried in a long sentence having to do with H.R. Uh, 1. Um, it was a throwaway line, in essence. I think we could have come in under the Biden administration and said, we know you're pissed. We know why you're pissed. We're going to clean up the mess that is causing you to be pissed off. We're here with our brooms and our scrub brushes, and we're going to take on what has gone wrong. And what has gone wrong is that people you never see are spending billions of dollars to make sure you're not heard. And to me, all the polling shows that that is a powerful, powerful, powerful message. It's not like we have to go into a box canyon with a terrible message in order to do this. It's actually effective. And still, we just didn't. We just couldn't be bothered. Um, well, so I guess over the last two years, we've, you know, kind of seen a repeat of the Obama era in, in you know, several ways. And one, one of them is that, um, you know, that for instance, that, um, you know, voting rights legislation was held up effectively because um, some Democrats sort of prioritized the filibuster above it. Um, you know, for instance, um, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, um, you know, it's our contention that the filibuster uh, serves as corporate America's kill switch, you know, an, an effective veto on legislation. Um, you know, do, do you think, um, you know, wh why, why do you think it is that some Democrats care so much about the filibuster? Um, is it because it, you know, helps ensure that uh, nothing will ever kind of fundamentally change? Or is it because they really, you know, really love uh, rules and procedure? I can't um, ascribe motive to colleagues. I do think that if you're engaged in the business of corruption, and I mean that in the founding father's sense of the word, more so than the very narrow technical, legal, criminal definition that has now shrunk down to. If you are engaged in corruption, the number one task of your corruption is to protect the means by which you corrupt. It is the evil that makes all your other evils possible. And so there's enormous effort on the Republican side to make sure that it's clear to everybody that for Mitch McConnell, voting against dark money is a red line. Doesn't matter what you believe. 
Doesn't matter what you care about procedure. You've got to toe the line and do what you're told or else, you know, the dark money donors will come down on your on your head. Um, we don't have anything like that discipline on our side, even when the stakes are as high as protecting our democracy from a force that eight out of nine Supreme Court justices agreed was corrupting. There's no real debate over the fact that it is corrupting. And yet with corruption live and well in our democracy, we couldn't round up 50 votes to stem the source of the corruption. I mean, it's just kind of stunning that we couldn't pull that off. And again, without ascribing motive, um, it's just a massive failure uh, to have gotten that done. And, um, you know, to, to be perfectly blunt about it, we, we'd actually like to go back to the filibuster. You know, we, the code for this is that they're filibustering. They're not filibustering. They're using a rule called the cloture rule because there's no end to the ability of the minority to tie up the majority in knots. If we had a clean filibuster rule, um, which I think you fix mostly by doing things like fixing the quorum requirement um, and making sure that when people have said all that they're going to say, that's it, and you don't get to just repeat yourself indefinitely. There are ways to do that by rules. And then you go back to a real filibuster where the Republicans get the chance to slow down the Senate. They get the chance to say their piece. Every single one can come to the floor and once, maybe twice, vent themselves fully, make sure the American public is aware, slow business down in the Senate so that it really has to be important to use this for the majority. It's not just going to be used to roll them, you know, every day, every week. But at the end of that long and arduous process, there is a vote. And that vote is to a majority. And that's what we've lost. So really, what we want to do is go back to a real filibuster where the Republicans get to slow things down, get to make sure that their arguments are heard, and then we vote. Let's turn to the general state of American politics for a sec. I want to know, I ask lawmakers this when they come on this program, because I think it's an important question to hear their theories. What is your overall theory? about how Donald Trump became president, why he remains a political force in America. How did that happen? I think there's an argument out there that it, that if you look at the numbers, it, that the explanation that it's just racism, for instance, it doesn't hold up when you consider, as an example, that President Obama won 200 plus counties uh, in 2008, 2012, that Donald Trump then won in 2016. So I'd just like to hear what you think birthed the Donald Trump phenomenon? I think um, two things did. One was the base condition of very broad frustration with how our democracy was delivering for regular people, particularly uh, economically. Um, and he was able to touch that frustration, tap into it. And it reached a level where people thought, you know what, somebody who's going to go in there and just bust things up. He may be kind of a jerk, but maybe he'll turn out to be like my kind, my jerk. Um, so there was a he, he had that sense of frustration providing um, solid wind at his back. Uh, and he also, I think, went out and spent time with the very far right and learned the vocabulary of grievance and resentment in the very far right. And he was able to capture that better than 
other colleagues who are sort of trying to disguise their affinities for those groups and keep them in the background. Uh, he made it very plain and uh, upfront that he was with the extremists, uh, those who frankly been around us forever. Um, it's, it's been a constant theme in democratic small D uh, politics that there's been a angry right wing fringe. So it's been like, Back to the John Birch Society, it's been a long time thing, and there's big money behind those groups. So he's able to tap into that. And then I think the third thing was he was able to make peace with the Koch brothers, who were running the biggest political operation behind the Republican Party, basically as the Republican Party, uh, you know, in behind the curtain. Um, and somehow, although they got off to a really bad start, you remember he took those Republicans who were going out to kiss the ring of the Koch brothers and made fun of them and mocked them and made fun of the Koch brothers and mocked them and wasn't with them on entitlements, wasn't with them on trade. And they were two medieval houses at war with each other. And somehow peace was brokered. And I think it was brokered over him giving them the choices of who'd be on the Supreme Court through Leonard Leo and through him giving them all of the environment and energy positions in his administration. I think there was a deal cut between House of Coke and House of Trump. Um, so I think those were the three big things. He, he unified the party in that sense, as well as being able to touch base with its most, most aggravated and extreme fringe and tap into the larger, broader sense of frustration. Looking at the midterm elections uh, coming up next week, um, it, you know, it seems like yet again, voters are kind of overwhelmingly concerned with the state of the economy and, of course, inflation, which has you know been on the rise for the last year. Um, so I guess what kind of economic message do you think Democrats are offering voters right now? Or, you know, what, what do you think their message should be? I go back to where we began. I think, you know, we're Americans first. There's a reason you're mad about the economy. There's a reason you're paying the highest prices at the fuel pump that you can remember. And the oil companies are making the biggest profits that they've ever reported. Those things connect. And Democrats will try to balance the power for you. Democrats will try to make sure you're listened to. And we've shown that we can. We did it with that little bite at pharma on drug pricing. We did it with that little bite on big oil on the uh, climate measures in the infrastructure, in the uh, inflation reduction bill. Um, we will take on the big, powerful special interests for you, um, but don't believe their lies because you're, you're, the, you're the chump in this con game. Um, and I think, you know, that's not probably the best way to say it, but I do think that a message that connects the failures of American democracy that are driven by the people behind the Republican Party to the economic dissatisfaction that people are feeling and the injustice that people are feeling. you got to make that connection. And then there's sort of a patriotic thing about it, too. We're, we're cleaning up our country. It's not just a question of everybody doing a little better in their pocket. Everybody does a little bit better in their pocket when we clean up our country. So last question to bring this back to Dark Money and your book, which is such an important book. You're the sponsor of this of the Disclose Act. We've been talking about that, referring to it. It would force some disclosure of the dark money dominating the midterm elections, dominating American politics. If you could somehow wave a wand and the filibuster, have that bill pass, how do you think in practice that would change things? Can disclosure of the problem 
fix the problem or would the spenders who were overwhelming the system and corrupting the system, would they just keep spending? Some might keep spending, but here are the things that would change. First, citizens would be in on the joke. Citizens would understand who was behind these ads pouring out of their television screens and devices at them. And that's important knowledge for citizens to have. Second, a lot of the filth and lies that is broadcast by dark money would go away because somebody or something real would be accountable for that smear and those lies, as opposed to having a front group like a Kleenex that you can make up for one election be the mouthpiece for all your lies and smears and then throw it away and people can be mad at it, but it doesn't matter because you threw it away. It never really existed in the first place. And the third thing is that when people get the joke about what's going on and can understand motive and uh, then some of these ads actually probably become counterproductive. So I think a lot of the big money spending goes away Once someone real or something real, let's say it's a corporation, something real has to own it. And I think that brings down the temperature and the amount of this dark money spending and clues citizens in to what's going on around them. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island, the new book is called The Scheme, How the Right Wing Used Dark Money to Capture the Supreme Court. I encourage everybody to get it and to read it. Senator, thank you for taking some time with us. Please keep fighting this fight. Don't get discouraged and get in the face of your Senate colleagues to keep forcing this issue. Thank you so much. Thank you, David. Thank you, Andrew. That's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Levertime Premium get to hear our bonus segment, Pod is Not Saving America, in which producer Frank sacrifices his mental health to listen through an entire episode of Pod Save America and then reports back on how close the pod bros are to actually saving America. They do not ask a single follow-up question to Barack Obama. Let's not get twisted. These guys aren't journalists. They're not taking this seriously. If they had, they would have maybe, maybe asked him about not codifying Roe during his presidency, but they don't. They just pivot on to the next thing. And please be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review for Levertime on your favorite podcast app. One last favor to ask. If you like this podcast and our reporting, Please tell your friends and family about The Lever and the work we're doing here. Forward our emails to them. Encourage them to subscribe. The only way independent media grows is by word of mouth. So we need all the help we can get to continue doing the work that we're doing. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Keep rocking the boat.